Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 121. It's titled, What If Everyone Indexed? The first time I played tennis on my city's public courts, I was 9 or 10. I used a wooden racquetball racket as I didn't own a tennis racket. I won due to superior technology. My friend had used a ping pong paddle. Five years later, I owned my own racket and had advanced enough in my tennis skills to play doubles on my high school tennis team as a freshman. The next year as a sophomore, I played first singles, which meant I was our team's star player. Not because I had dramatically improved, but because all the better players had graduated. My season as a singles player was highly predictable. When we played teams from school districts with a higher socioeconomic status than my lower middle class neighborhood, I was soundly beaten, usually by their reserve team. They didn't even send the varsity team. Players at those schools have been taking private lessons for years on indoor courts using regulation-sized rackets instead of ping-pong paddles or racquetball rackets. When I played tennis from school districts poorer than mine, I generally won. It was when we played schools that were at our same socioeconomic level that things got interesting. One of those schools was Reading High School. I look forward to that mid-season match as a real test of my tennis skills. I was even more excited when we arrived at their courts and I found out my opponent was a girl. She was beautiful, long dark hair, brown eyes, tanned skin from sun-filled days of playing tennis. She dressed all in white. We were assigned to a court apart from the others, about a quarter a mile from the main courts. As we chatted on our walk over to the courts, I felt a little bad that I was about to beat such a cute girl in tennis. Later, after she had soundly beaten me, I was glad our court was far away from the others so no one could see I had lost to a girl. And I lost for a very simple reason. I just made more mistakes than her. She was definitely a better player. Amateur tennis is a loser's game. Dr. Simon Ramo, in his book, Extraordinary Tennis for the Ordinary Tennis Player, discovered that in amateur tennis, 80% of the points are lost. The players hit the ball long or into the net or the double fault on their serve. The outcome is determined by the loser's mistakes. In professional tennis, 80% of the points are won by the better player. The outcome is determined by the winner's superior shot placement. Charles Ellis, in his classic investment book, Winning the Loser's Game, made a strong case for why investment management has evolved from a winner's game where active stock managers can outperform the market indices to a loser's game where most trail their designated market benchmarks. 
Decades ago, the vast majority of stock trades were made by amateur investors. Professional investors could gain an informational advantage over these amateurs by conducting research on the company's issuing stock. These professionals could determine which stocks were over or undervalued because the market was primarily comprised of investors who didn't conduct as much research. And so if you were a professional investor, a stock market is an auction market. So who was on the other side of the trade? If you had done your due diligence, you determined a stock was undervalued and then went out to buy it, typically the seller was an individual, not another institution. Over time, more and more trades were made by institutions. And as computing power increased and the cost of technology fell, professional investors got better and better at identifying mispriced securities. Ellis writes, As a group, professional money managers are so good that they make it nearly impossible for any one professional or any one professional to outperform the market they together now dominate. And so it's smart people against very, very smart people. This high level of competition means very few active managers can outperform the market indices after fees. For example, a 2013 study by NerdWallet showed only 24% of active U.S.-based mutual funds outperformed their designated benchmark for the 10 years ending December 31, 2013. The study showed index funds that seek to replicate the market outperformed actively managed funds by 0.8% annually. Likewise, a study by S&P Dow Indices found 86% of European-based actively managed funds investing in global U.S. and emerging markets failed to beat their benchmarks for the 10 years ending December 31, 2015. The disappointing performance has led more and more investors to pull money from actively managed funds and allocated to exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, and indexed mutual funds that seek to replicate areas of the market rather than try to outperform them. In 2015, ETFs received $200 billion in new inflows, while actively managed funds suffered $124 billion in outflows, according to the research firm EPFR. This trend has continued in 2016. In a recent paper called Indexing and Stock Market Serial Dependence Around the World, Guido Baltussen, Sajord Van Beckham, and Gida, I love when I read act when I read academic papers, I invariably probably mispronounce the names. But in this paper, this came out this year, they estimate approximately seven percent of US large company stock capitalization as measured by the S&P 500, is indexed using ETFs, index funds, and futures contracts. And so they're not, they're not looking, you know, sometimes these statistics show that X percent of funds are index funds. We're looking at total market capitalization. So all the stocks, the number of shares of stocks outstanding times, their prices, that is the size of the market. And 7% of the large company market as measured by the S&P 500, or 7% of the S&P 500 is indexed using ETFs, index funds, and futures contracts. 
They estimate that globally, just under 3% of global stock market capitalization is indexed. And that's from less than 0.5% in the early 1990s. Now, when I saw that data, I was surprised more investors were in indexing. If it's only 7% in probably the most indexed market U.S. large company stocks and 3% globally, that means that most investors are trying to win a loser's game. And as a result, most will lag the market averages. Charles Ellis, in a recent interview on Consuelo Max Track, and this I hadn't seen this, but one of the members, Steve, a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, brought this interview to my attention. And, and I love this interview because Ellis is just so matter-of-fact in, in how he presents his case. And what's amazing is Ellis ran a firm for many years that consulted to active managers and, and wrote about how managers can outperform the market. But now he says the market has changed. The managers have gotten way too smart as they compete against each other. Collectively, they underperform. But here's his quote. If you would like to be above average, that's easy. Index. And you will clearly, decisively, almost every year and certainly every decade, comfortably be comfortably above average. Now, if you decide to index, and indexing is sometimes called passive management, there are still plenty of active decisions you need to make. Which asset classes are you going to hold? And you'll hold them via index funds or ETFs, but which asset classes will you own? What will their weight be in the portfolio? How often will you rebalance? Will you adjust your allocation based on market conditions, based on valuations, economic trends, or market internals? Those are active decisions. And and one reason I started the Money for the Rest of Us Hub was because to develop the tools that I use to manage my own money, but also to help other investors and, and provide guidance to them as they work through some of these active decisions they need to make, even though most of the the ETF recommendations on the hub are passive, but there are still active decisions that need to be to be made. Or most most of those holdings, they're they're ETFs, they're passive investment vehicles. In 1997, about a couple years after I got into the investment business, I went to a conference in Chicago, and one of the discussions was what happens when more and more investors index. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's sort of the question. We, we, the focus is what happens as more and more investors take Charles Ellis' advice when it goes from 3% to 5 to 10% to 25%. Well, we're already seeing some of the impact of more and more indexing. First off, When we talk about, so only 3% of the market is indexed, but what we're not including are what are known as closet indexers. Most managers, institutional managers, mutual fund managers are benchmark, active managers that is, are benchmarked against some, some market index. So if you're a large company stock manager in the U.S., your bogey or your index is the S&P 500 index. And I remember one time, this was probably mid-2000s, we, we always met with, with managers 
at my old firm, and they would come through our office. And I remember I was back in Ohio, and this manager came through, and I think their name, their name was Invesco was a manager, and they they had had an active large company strategy. And this was a firm that had gone through some ownership changes and some investment changes. But I remember the manager talked about holding IBM in their portfolio because it was the best technology company that they could find that allowed them to get exposure to the their index or and not be too underweight technology. What were they saying? They were saying this was not a high conviction idea. This was an idea that they put in the portfolio in order to limit their tracking error relative to the S&P 500 because S&P 500 had a sizable weighting in technology. They felt they needed to have some technology stocks in their portfolio so that if the technology sector did well, they didn't lag by too much. And so they had exposure to S&P 500 companies just because they wanted to minimize their deviations relative to their index. That's called closet indexing. And many active managers hold stocks only because they represent, they're in the index and they're trying to minimize their tracking error. But let's go back to what is the original purpose of the stock market? The original purpose of the stock market is to allow corporations to access public investment capital that they can then use to invest in property, plant, equipment, new technology. And so they, they use it to raise capital. More and more, though, some of that capital they raise is used to liquidate private equity owners and the founders. But that, that's the original point of the stock market. Now, also, what a stock is, it is future cash flow. You own a portion of the company. Ideally, over time, they pay out a portion of the profits as dividends. And so you can determine the intrinsic value of a stock based on the value of its future cash flow. And, and that's, that's, there's a present value calculation. So you have these future cash flows. You discount them back and you estimate. So the, these, these fundamental stock managers, they can estimate what the earnings of a company will be, what the cash flow will be. And ultimately, they come up with a value. What do they believe is the proper price for this company relative to what it's currently priced? And as I mentioned, all all the managers are doing this now. Sometimes they do it quantitatively. Sometimes it might not be an explicit discounted cash flow type calculation. They might be using a multiple of earnings, but they're doing a value. They're trying to determine the intrinsic value. And and historically, most trades in the market were based on views of managers that had a view on a stock, they'd done the research, and then they were buying it. And so if you had a stock market made made up mostly of traders and investors who believe a stock is mispriced, and if more and more of those trades in the market are coming from these managers with this type of fundamental view, then ultimately the price of the stock should be close to its intrinsic value. It's sort of the wisdom of the crowds, all these managers, and so you get a very, very efficient market. But what happens when more and more investors index, that means more and more trades are not related to fundamental views of the market. They're related to to outside things, and that can cause price distortions 
and fundamental shocks. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The Pearl and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash David, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash David now to grow your business, no matter what state you're in. Shopify.com slash David. What I did to prepare for this episode, I went out and I looked at what is the latest research that shows the impact of exchange-traded funds and indexing. Because then we can look at what are the clues, what's happening now, and then extrapolate if more and more investors index. And one of the challenges is there's a hidden cost to indexing as funds or new stocks are added and deleted from the index. Because an index such as the Russell 2000, the S&P 500, is not static. They have criteria, and they'll add stocks and they'll they'll delete stocks and there's a study that was called the index premium and it's hidden and it's hidden cost for index funds it's by anti patahisto and and all these papers i'll link to in the show notes you can find that at moneyfortherestofus.net if you're a member of my free insider's guide, you can and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. You already have been sent those show notes along with a summary article of this week's episode and other valuable content. You can also sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can sign up by texting the word INSIDER to the number 44222. 
So this paper found that for additions to the S&P 500 and the Russell 2000, that the price impact from the time that they announce the, that they're going to add the stock to the, the new index or the, to the index to when it actually takes place, on average, the stock rose 8.8% for the S&P 500 and 4.7% for the Russell 2000. And when a company is announced that they're going to be taken out of the index, they fell on average 15% for the S&P 500 and 4.6% for the Russell 2000. And so every year you have new additions and deletions. So you get the pop of the stock before it enters the index and you get the, the trailing or it falls off before it leaves. It's when the announcement occurs. And that turnover, they estimate, from 1990 to 2005 costs between about 0.21 to 0.28% for the S&P 500 per year. So that's a drag on performance. And that's a, it's a hidden cost because you don't see it. It's just happening in terms of the individual stocks within the index. For the Russell 2000, they estimate it to be 0, uh, 0.38% to 0.77% for the Russell 2000. And so just the addition and deletion. And, and why does that occur? Because you have all these managers. If you have 7% of the S&P 500 is owned by index-like vehicles, and, and they announce a new company is going to be added, well, then suddenly you have 7% of the market having to go out and buy that new company or that stock. There was another study by Randall Mork and Fang Yang. This is an older study. This is called The Mysterious Growing Value of S&P Index Membership. And what they did is they looked at members of the S&P 500, and they tried to find a comparable stock, similar industry, similar sector, and they compared the valuation. And they estimated as of 1997, S&P 500 membership resulted in a 40% premium. In other words, they were hot. You got the, the stocks were higher valued because you had all these indexers own it, but then you have all these closet indexers owning these companies, and they push up the value. So one of the challenges that more and more people index, you're going to have more and more an, an impact of these additions and deletions. So this hidden cost can get higher as these managers add and subtract as they try to, to capture the index. A second thing that will happen will be reduced diversification in higher volatility. To understand this concept, we have to go back to how ETFs trade. So you have an exchange-traded fund that is tracking a basket of securities or an index. And the, the idea is the, the ETF price needs to be in sync with the underlying value of those baskets of securities, indexing. Sometimes you can have a, a small premium or a small discount, but you have arbitragers that are out there making sure and profiting to make sure that there's a very tight connection between the price of the index or the price of the ETF and the price of the basket of security. And they do that by buying the ETF and selling short the basket of securities, or they might sell short the ETF 
and buy the basket of the securities. And and so you have all this trading going on, just trying to keep the prices in line, which means many, much of the trading within stocks is not based on fundamental information. It's based on non-fundamental, perhaps downward pressure. The S&P 500, the spider ETF, had turnover of 3,000% in 2015. So you've got a lot of motion. You have all this arbitrage activity. A paper called Do ETFs Increase Volatility by Ben David Itchak, Francesco Franzoni, and Rabi Musawi, January 2014. They estimate that an increase of one standard deviation in ETF ownership is associated with an increase of 16% in daily stock market volatility. Another paper on the same topic was When the Bellwether Dances to Noise, Evidence from Exchange-Traded Funds. And what they found is that the the stocks tend to move together because if you have all this arbitrage activity where they're buying a whole basket of stocks, You'll, you'll find stocks within the ETF, there's much more co-movement. And so you don't have all the different movement that the, the stock is trading together. And that's, that's less diversification. Jeff Wergler in a paper called On the Economic Consequences of Index-Linked Investing writes, the return pattern of the newly included S&P 500 members, so new stocks added, changes magically and quickly. It begins to move more closely with its 499 new neighbors and less closely with the rest of the market. It's as if it has joined a new school of fish. A final impact as indexing increase is an increase in market instability and rational herding. And this is from a paper called Can ETFs Increase Market Fragility? It's from IN. Bhattacharya and Maureen O'Hara came out April 2016. And and they talk about market instability being shocks to stocks, price shocks, price impacts, that's unrelated to the fundamental value of an asset. That can occur if there's a huge inflow into, let's say, emerging markets ETFs, the arbitrage activity, the creation unit activities, or the process that ETFs go through to create more units, can lead to heavy shorting in emerging market stocks, which can have an impact. So that's market instability. You can get hurting when you have market speculators, as I say, trading in the same direction on the same market signals, unhinged from asset fundamentals. In other words, there's not a fundamental change to the asset. It's something completely different. Here's what they say in their paper to better describe this. Informed trading can occur in both the ETF and the underlying assets. But in many settings, particularly those in which the underlying assets are hard to trade, informed traders may not have synchronous or symmetric access to both the ETF and the underlying assets. What they mean is in order for the arbitrage mechanism to work so that the the value of the underlying assets equals the price of the ETF, the the traders, the arbitragers need information on both of them, correct pricing information. And they give some examples. For instance, trade in some foreign sovereign stocks require licenses that ETF traders often do not have, rendering the underlying assets out of bounds for speculators 
except as part of country ETFs. So if you can't actually trade the underlying assets, then you could have a disconnect with the price of the ETF. They go on. Similarly, in certain commodity ETFs, they trade trade in the underlying underlying asset requires the capacity to carry the physical asset. So in terms of settling the commodities, and oftentimes ETF speculators can't participate in the underlying assets. For many bond ETFs, underlying markets are still over-the-counter and illiquid, and trade may be difficult. I learned this in the ETF index or the ETF conference I went to in December where they talked about many investors, institutional investors, are trading in the high-yield bond ETF because it's way more liquid than the underlying assets. Well, that, that disconnect means you can have essentially market fragility. You can have herd be- behavior because if you can't get the information on the underlying assets and the appropriate value, then the ETF starts to drive the market and you can have big disconnect. You can have time differences as, as trading hours for ETFs and the underlying assets don't always overlap. And we saw that in Greek ETFs in the summer 2015 when there was huge disconnect in terms of timing, all the events that were happening in, in Greece versus the underlying assets. When traders can't get accurate information on the ETF or the underlying prices, then you can have huge swings in volatility. You can have herding behavior as investors just sort of see what's happening in other ETFs. We saw this last year, October 25th, 2015. And there's a, there's a paper I'll, I'll link to in the show notes by State Street. I did an episode right after the day after this, episode 71 on Please Don't Panic. And, and there we saw ETFs fall 20 to 25% in a day at the opening hours of trading, very much disconnected from stocks with that, that were in the underlying baskets, which did not fall as much. And, and what happened is, and you can read it in the State Street paper, is at the open, and there was a huge demand for, there was a development in China, I believe they had just devalued their currency, and so there was panic, and there was huge interest, and a lot of market orders at the opening, a lot of volatility, and a lot of stocks that were in these baskets, such as stocks in the S&P 500, did not open right away. In other words, they didn't, they didn't open at the normal time because they were, they were trading holds because of the volatility. And so because you had underlying stocks that weren't trading, then it was, it was the arbitragers were unable to correctly price the ETFs. And so you had a huge disconnect and the arbitraging mechanism broke down. So in summary, as more and more investors index and more and more active managers become closet indexers, you're going to see less diversification. You're going to see the underlying stocks move much more in tandem. You're going to have much more non-fundamental shocks, market instability, and hurting as investors trade on non-fundamental information. And so that you're going to get more flash crashes. That's just a reality. Now, hopefully at some point, as more and more people index, there'll be opportunities to hold non-indexed assets. But right now, indexing is currently the, the best solution. You get low fees. They're very tax efficient. You can get above average result. And the market mostly works. You don't have huge dislocations. 
you're starting to see clues. And so it's just something to monitor over time. Now, just because indexing works very, very well in stocks doesn't mean every asset class has to be indexed. On the Money for the Rest of Us hub, the, on the model portfolios, the stocks are all indexed. 90% of my pers- personal portfolio is indexed. But on the bonds, there's active strategies because they're, the, the, the index vehicles aren't always the best solution in terms of you can get a higher yield in an active management strategy. You can benefit from the manager making some, some selection to, avo- to avoid, for example, in the non-investment-grade bond space where you have a huge amount of defaults. Just having a manager to do some credit research to avoid the companies that appear likely to default can boost returns. One of the things you need to do if you buy ETFs, and I discussed this in episode 78, is to use limit orders when you initiate a trade. And a limit order is you're saying, I will buy the ETF for this price and I will sell it for this price. You're not doing a market order where you'll take whatever price the market is trading at because if the the ETF suddenly plummets due to one of these dislocations, your order could be filled and that might not necessarily be at the price you want. So you need to use limit orders. So that's today's episode. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. I mentioned you can already sign up for the Insider's Guide if you would like some additional portfolio guidance and help see what the model portfolios are on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, see what I'm doing in my portfolio, get updates on market conditions to see if we're having a regime change that suggests we should be reducing risk or increasing risk. You can get all that at my premium membership site, the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, and you can get that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.